everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is Pete Bartoli, who came on to talk about Fish's performance at the Cumberland County Civic Center, the CCCC, on December 30th, 1993. Although this episode is really about Pete's experience at the show, I found it difficult not to contribute too much, as this show has lived in my mind's eye for decades. When I first began to collect fish tapes in 1996, I mostly found shows from around 1992 to 1994, because not only were they the most plentiful and easy to access, but they were in smaller venues, and the band had a habit of leaking soundboard recordings to the fans, which made them crystal clear even on the Sony Walkman that I used every day. Plus, the relatively short length of the songs submerged me into learning as much of Fish's catalog as possible. As a result, 1993 as a calendar year looms large in my Fish DNA. It was with this mindset that I was thrilled when Pete chose December 30th, 93. Not only is it a December 30th show, which makes it an instant classic, but it's also a widely circulated show that demonstrates so much of why I and many others love Fish. So it truly was a thrill to hear a first-person perspective of what it was like to be in the middle of this bone-chilling holiday run during Fish's ascent to world domination. Add in the fact that we are currently rapidly approaching Fish's 2021 holiday run, and it was a no-brainer. So grab your heaviest coat, listen to a bit of Aerosmith, and prepare for a setlist chock-full of Gamehenge as we discuss Fish's performance on December 30th, 1993 at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. Pete, welcome to Attendance Bias. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Love being here. Excited to talk about this show today. I am too. We are here to talk about December 30th, 93, and there's so much about this show to get through and to talk about, but just the fact that it's a December 30th show, which we yes. all know is kind of a high holy day in the fish calendar. The fact that it's at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Maine, which is also like hallowed ground. And also it's one of the earlier shows that any guests has picked. And I think my natural inclination is to hear more about the history of fish than the present of fish. And that's just my personality, but I can't wait to hear more about your experience. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I think you hit on a great point there that uh, the the lore of 1230 is uh, right. It's, it's a high holy day and on the fish calendar. I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, for me personally, it starts on this day, obviously. But I, I think even looking back over history, many ways, this is one of the first real special 1230 shows. So let's get to know you a little bit, Pete. Uh, let's get into the attendance bias lightning round. You ready? Sounds good. Excited. Attendance bias lightning round. Pete, when was your first fish show? Five fourteen ninety two Capitol Theater at uh, Portchester, New York. Have you been back to the Capitol since? Number of times. I've seen a bunch of shows there since. I think actually one of the last shows I saw was Tab in uh, 2020, like in Jan. I think it was January. It was in, it 2020. Was in February, I think. I For was February, too. yeah. I was yeah, there with okay, my brother. Great. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So that was the last time I was at, I was at the Cap. What do you remember from your first show? If you could sum it up in like, um, you have one minute. <laughs> okay. I was really new to fish. Didn't know a lot. You know, at that point, I think I knew like the whole Lawn Boy CD. My biggest one, one of the mem couple memories, one is standing outside the cap 
Trey walks by, my friend says to me, oh, that's the guitarist. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like no big deal. deal. (laughs) Um, But by the end of the show, and I've I've heard people say this before, and I think this is really true. the, The biggest feeling was, it was like everyone was in on this joke and I wasn't quite in on this joke yet, but what was, but I wanted to know more. And what was happening musically was just blowing me away and, and different from any other musical experience I had had before. It was just, I couldn't believe what this band was doing on stage. So if your first show is May 14th, 92 at the Capitol, what's your most recent show? September 5th, uh, 21 at Dick's. Oh, so fairly recent. Dick's. Yeah. Yeah. The machine set. Um, what a, what a great run of shows that was. We had a great time. Do you have a favorite song? Uh, favorite song. Oh my gosh. It changes by the week. What, what is sure. it today? Today it's, it's sense and subtle sounds lately. Like that's really it for me. I, I seek it out. I just think lyrically it's got it all going on. And then especially when, with the intro, of course, you've got to have that. Got to have then, the intro. And, and then they deliver a jam on it. It's just, uh, it's just a song that um, I just can't see myself growing tired of. So that right now, uh, as of this day, at this moment, it's sense and subtle sounds. What's your favorite indoor venue? I mean, it's got to be MSG. I've probably seen, you know, it's my home venue. Uh, I'm in Connecticut, but I, I grew up in North Jersey. I, I saw the Grateful Dead there in 88. You know, like the first time I was ever at the garden was seeing the Grateful Dead there. It, it's just special for me in that way. Other than that, I love Hampton too. Same, you know, similar reasons. Do you have a favorite outdoor venue? I've now been to Dick's a couple times and I just love it there. There's something about the ease of that place um, uh, that I really like. I loved Bethel Woods would be my other choice. Um, they played it once and something up with red light management and live nation and whoever, I don't know what's happening, but people need to get out of the way and let fish come back there. <laughs> I agree. That was such a wonderful weekend. You know, it's funny when fish fans complain about everything, or at least they can mm-hmm. and fish. There's always something, no matter how great anything is, how great X is, there's always the cohort that's going to complain about X, whatever it is. Yeah, I have never heard anyone complain about Bethel Woods. I mean, it, it was, you know, this brand new venue, sight lines are perfect, no matter where you are, you be on the lawn, if, you know, which was just fine. I was on the lawn one night, I was in the pavilion another night. Uh, the 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 pre-show setup is great. You know, you're parked on grass, everybody's hanging out, having a good time. It was just, and beautiful, just a beautiful Pristine. setting. Pristine. I mean, uh, and then you have the whole, history of Woodstock around it and it just adds to the lore of it. I just think it's like the perfect venue and for some reason Fish and Bethel Woods. All things considered, if you had to listen to one year of Fish for the rest of your life, which year would you pick? Oh, um jeez, oh, that's we hard. Asked the hard probably, questions here. Probably 95. Probably yeah, 95. Because I, I sometimes that's my answer too. What is it for you about 95? There, there's a lot of attendance bias being that yeah. this is the name of this podcast wrapped up in 95 for me. It's probably the year I saw the most shows. I was uh, um, senior in college that year. That's you know, the time. so, you know, that summer I, you know, saw a ton of shows, was vending, whole thing, did the whole thing, you know. Um, did, 94, you a, did you have a hemp necklace? 
I did have a necklace at it all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, in that whole December run, I mean, I saw a lot of the, the I saw probably 12 shows in that December wow. alone. So, you know, it was um really special. And and we but we get to see the band really grow in that year. And when I go back and revisit those shows, I'm just like, wow, I, I can't believe we like took this for granted, you know. I mean. It, it was nuts, but yeah, I would say 95, 97, a close second. Definitely. So, yeah. you know, there's that quote that I remember at least from the office. I don't know if it's actually attributed to a writer on that show, but I think the character Andy toward the very end of the show says, I wish someone could tell you that you're in the good old days while you're in them. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great way to say it. Absolutely. I love that. After a show, what's your favorite post show snack? Depending on where I am, if I'm at MSG, it's Pizza Supreme all day long. Uh, Got to get a slice. Usually a slice, even if I'm on a lot, it's somebody's French bread pizza post-show or something about pizza after a show. Um, I've, I've heard like. so many people talk about that place, Pizza Suprema. Now it's on, what is it, so good. 3rd Street and 8th Avenue? It's on, yeah, where, wherever, you know, the post office side is. I always yeah. forget the names That's of 8th everything. Avenue, yeah. it, it's it's um you know, right across, right there, right on the same side as the post office, um, just across. Definitely go to Pizza Suprema. So good. Because I've, I've grown up on Long Island. I live in New York City. I've seen more than half of my fish shows at Madison Square Garden, and I've never yeah. been there. Yeah, it's, oh, you got to go. Definitely. You know, it's this year. Are you going this holiday once, tour? Once I get tickets, that'll be priority number one. Priority number okay. two is... Pizza Suprema. Pizza Suprema. There you go. Good. I'll take my um, microphone and say anyone right. out there who has an extra yeah. for the 30th or the 31st, get in touch, please. There you go. I'll gladly buy you a slice at, at Pizza <laughs> Suprema. <laughs> and my last question, my favorite one, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? Definitely John Fishman prancing around the stage naked on uh, Halloween 94. By far the most bizarre out of this world thing I've ever seen um, with his symbols during the revolution. Number nine, just by far the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. No fan could, could, could outdo it, you know? So um, really good stuff. When was this show played? So the 1993 holiday run today's show that we're discussing was played on December 30th, 1993 and the 93 holiday run was four shows, just like it is today, but different in that it was split up between several venues. So the 28th was at the Bender Arena in American University in Washington, Washington, D.C. And I remember that was one of my first burned CD shows. I remember going to college. Yeah. It was the first time mm -hmm. I had an Ethernet connection and a CD burner in the same place. And wow, did I go <laughs> hog wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that 28th holds a special place in my heart, even though nice. it's not a, a highly cited show. The next night was at New Haven, uh, the New Haven mm -hmm. Coliseum in Connecticut, the 30th today's show, which was in the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, and then New Year's Eve at the Worcester Centrum in Worcester. And it's mm -hmm. pretty nuts when I was looking into this that just a year later, they'd be playing New Year's Eve at Boston Garden. Crazy. I know. And, the, you, and the year before they were at Matthews Arena in Northeastern University. Yeah, it's the growth is just uh, insane. Interesting side note on that. I was at the 20, I had friends at the 28th, but 
I went to the 29th, 30th, and 31st of this run. And after the 31st, my friend, I distinctly recall my friends and I talking about how Fish will be playing Madison Square Garden in the next year. Like we we could see them just gr- blowing up. I mean, we had gone from right the Capitol Theater and small theaters to all of a sudden Worcester Centrum, which seemed huge at the time, to yeah, this this is a reality. Fortunately, they never got to the you know, massive giant stadium type level thing. Yeah, fingers crossed that they don't. Yes. Yes. So well, I wanted to ask when you, cause I've heard several people say almost that exact phrase that you could see them mm-hmm. blowing up. Like you could see the growth, but mm-hmm. a lot of people say that in the early nineties from like 90 to 95, you could see the band growing up or you could see them expanding. What does that actually look like? Like what pops into your head when you say a phrase like that? Because by the time I saw them, they were already selling out Madison Square Garden. Well, let's put it this way. Like in that year, like I'll take it from like the the lot perspective, almost Mm -hmm. like the fan perspective, you know. So that year we saw a bunch of shows in May. Saw the State Theater show in New Brunswick, which is a live fish release. Um, and then which, also, which year, I'm sorry to cut you off, but what year are this you is, talking about? This is May of 93. Okay. So May one, two, and three, I saw those shows and tower theater in upper Darby PA pre-show. There was really no lot scene, you know, a handful of people, a few guys, hacky sacking. We were some of them, right. You know, like <laughs> your hem necklaces. Yeah. Again. So 93, right. Okay. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, there, there's no shakedown. There's no nitrous tanks. There's none of this stuff. Like there's not, none of the chaos is there. And in many ways, there was an innocence to it that was really kind of nice that you almost kind of miss in some way. But by time we get to summer of 94, let's say, you know, so a, a year later, you're now having full shakedowns. You know, I mean, it's just the entire scene changed. People vending, many more people there. I think from the band, from the musical perspective, what changed that I could see was they seemed to really lean into it. What I mean by that is as they got from, you know, one smaller stage to a bigger stage, you know, as they stepped up in stage sizes um, or venue sizes, it's as though they were like, all right, we've got to really deliver here. We're playing on a bigger stage and playing with much more intent. Like when I think of this era, I think of a band that is really intent on making sure everybody leaves this show saying that was the greatest concert I've ever seen. And and honestly, we would leave these shows and go, that was the best antelope ever. That was the best. I mean, it was like, like a running joke with us. Like every show we go to, it's the best version of this or that. And it, and it was really like that. And consequently, the, I would say the fans pre 95 post 95 things blow up a bit, but pre 95. And this show is a good example of that. As we'll talk about the energy inside these venues was just every single person in there was on every note, hanging on every note with bated breath waiting for it. There was no talking. There was no, like, I mean, there was none of that. And everybody was younger So like nobody could really afford to drink really much, you know, so there wasn't even like that whole thing going on. Like there wasn't like a lot of beer drinking and so on. Like there weren't, I don't know. It's just a very different time where people were there for the music um, and the band really fed off that. And you could see it in the energy. And talking about energy, it required a lot of energy to go on this run because 
I've been all around New England. I didn't grow up there, but I've spent a lot of time in that area, that region. And this seems like an excessively spread out tour. I mean, D.C. and Portland are not that close to Worcester Mm -hmm. and New Haven. I mean, Google Maps, I just just for fun, I kind of saw what what I mapped out. And it was a total of about 11 hours of driving, which isn't tremendous among four shows. And it's all along 95 and 84. So maybe on a map as the crow flies, it looks a lot more than it actually was. Did you go to three out of four shows? Because I know you said you were at the 28th. So I went to three out of four, the 29th in New Haven. Now I was living um, in North Jersey at the time. So the 29th in New Haven, that was easy to get to. But post-show, my friends lived in Providence. Uh, We're going to school in Providence. And that's where we were going to stay. And kind of obviously a great breaking point between New Haven and and, uh, Portland. Now, that said, when you walk out of the New Haven Coliseum and there's six inches of snow on your car and it's still snowing and, you know, you're (laughs) leaving a fish show. um, So (laughs) your frame of mind is a little right. Uh, and and we were like, well, we got to get to Providence. Let's just go. I mean, talk about being young. You know, we're 20 years old at the time. So, yeah, like you'll do anything at 20. Uh, today, I probably would have got a hotel nearby and said, I'll just have a long drive tomorrow. You know? Yeah, man. When I think but... about some of the routes I took in like 2004, like toward that last, last tour. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Like I would never. What was it? It was from. New York to Great Woods to Camden to Coventry. Get out yeah. of here. Oh, yeah. It's just nuts. Yeah. I mean, some of these routes. And then, um, yeah, but you're right. It's, it's, and uh, like I had a couple friends who, who had done the Bender Arena. And that's, you know, that's a, a tough turnaround. You're right. So, and I'm glad you brought up the weather because according to a really great blog that I found while doing some research, it was called mm-hmm. Tackles and Lines. It's still available, yeah. but I don't think it's still maintained. The whole run was incredibly cold. I couldn't find a name associated with the blog post, but the author, whoever wrote it, described the holiday run as a, quote, torrential blizzard. And, quote, most fans were caught in a whiteout or waited until the very last minute to travel. So that mm-hmm. seems spot on with what you said. And yeah. the blog entry, which there's a link in the show notes today, it spends a lot of time focusing on Fish's overall year in 93. And as we alluded to earlier, December 30th and the significance of that date and how it's kind of developed as the most, arguably, <laughs> the most non-holiday date of the Fish calendar, you know, aside from Halloween yeah. and New Year's. Focusing specifically on this holiday run, these four nights, the band was recording Hoist that fall. Yeah. And December was spent mixing the album and doing the 1920s boardwalk photos that you'll find in the liner notes yeah. of of um of Hoist. So they were very busy in mm-hmm. the at the end of 1993. They were prepared because I think Hoist was released in the spring. And also notably, this was the first set of shows with fish tickets by mail that had specific tapers tickets. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Before then, it was huh. just, you know, you got to get there early and set up your just- stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. And uh, so the whole stage for all four nights was set up to look like an aquarium, which you could kind of see in the long forgotten down with disease music video. Yeah. By everyone except Beavis and Butthead, actually. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And tickets to the 30th were 1750. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, affordable enough for sure. And the yeah. band apparently leaked the soundboard recording of this show right after it was played, which mm-hmm. I think helps explain why it became so easily accessible and like one of the top traded shows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, oh, that's it. I mean, the aqu- the aquarium setup was, uh, I remember we were just kind of blown away by that whole thing. We just thought it was great. Um, and then it, it plays into it on uh, 93 as the gag is them, you know, dropping into the fish tank. I mean, you got to remember too, back, back at that time, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it was still Corona, but not like he is today, right? Yeah, Where, yeah. you know, I mean, I look back, I watch some of these old shows and, you know, you look at the lights and you just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's what the lights were <laughs> you know, at that time. And, and even that stage setup was, 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 um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess um, there, there's something really innocent about that stage setup, like meaning, you know, they didn't hire this big theater production company. It was probably just a bunch of people they knew um, who, you know, made a clam and made the, the difference. Yeah. So, well, I mean, Minkin, right? The backdrops. Yeah. That's, that's uh, Mike's yeah. mom. So yeah. it really was as in-house as you could get. Exactly. So why did you pick this show? Why do you have attendance bias toward December 30th of all the shows that you've seen since 1992? After seeing them in 92, you know, at the time that I started, you know, listening to fish, um, I was really deep into seeing the Grateful Dead a lot, you know, like that was what I was doing. Saw a ton of shows in 92, 93, um, seeing the Grateful Dead, chasing them, following them. and, you know, I liked fish and liked what I was hearing, but I kept viewing them as like, wow, these guys are really great musicians, but mm-hmm. I don't know that they, they have the magic, you know, the X factor or whatever you want to call it. Um, we like, and, I, and, you know, there, there's this expression people use of like, you know, the Grateful Dead are, you know, like going to church and, you know, seeing the Grateful Dead is like going to church, but seeing fish is like going to the circus, you know, and 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 there's some truth to that. There was some truth to that. To me, it was that kind of sums up kind of where I was mentally at the time. I was like, yeah, this is fun. This is a fun thing to do. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't getting like this whole like spiritual connection at these shows, like I would at a Grateful Dead show, where it was like, oh my gosh, this is on another level, you know. And I didn't think it was quite possible. Um this show really turned me around on that. There were several moments in this night just, and, and it's hard to like, you know, listening back to it for this podcast again, you know, I was hitting in on some points and we'll talk about them. Obviously the Bowie, the gin, the mics, the set list construction of set two in particular, um, just had a real, uh, the, the Forbins, which was, you know, game hench for me at this time was becoming much more important in my life. And so I think I finally understood all that. So I finally had this knowledge walking into this show and it kind of, you know, all culminated it, it, it on this night. And so for me, it was, I walked out of that show and said, this is it. This is the band I'm going to see. And I honestly, I probably saw the dead a handful of times after that and went on and just kept seeing fish. I just stopped. You know, I just switched gears and said, oh, my gosh, I got to do this. So that that's why it really just it, it's the show I got it, you know, and just it stuck with me. 
set one. The show opens with David Bowie, which is a heck of an opener. And it was back in the days when the band had a lot of fun with the intro. And those days aren't extinct, but they're not nearly as present as they used to be at at that time in the early 90s when the intro to Bowie could be its own song where it could mm-hmm. lead you anywhere. I rarely get that feeling these days. Absolutely. And the the intro then was half the fun, you know, they would yeah. toy around, they would play with it. Um, and yet you'd still time that kind of Bowie drop, right? You know, when they would hit the, the real momentum of the song. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And the first thing I noticed in this recording, which is outstanding, by the mm-hmm. way, anyone listening, if you haven't heard this show or haven't listened in a long time since you had your tapes, go on fish.in and look up December 30th, 93. It is a pristine, I use that word already, but it really yep. is a wonderful, wonderful recording. The first thing I noticed was Fishman's drums. Yes. Holy shit, man. It sounds like yeah. Like when I was really, when I was younger and I, I used to go into the music store, I'm a drummer. And mm-hmm. this is when the... um when the electronic drum sets, the V pads first came out and you could yeah. switch between a thousand different types of drum sets. If there was one called stadium rock, mm-hmm. this would be it. And this Fishman's be, drums yeah. are spot on. Like my ear floated to him the whole show. Loved it. as they grew you know now they're playing these small arenas you know right these little hockey rinks but prior to that they're really not playing those types of venues prior to these this run of shows and it's as though you know everybody obviously had to invest in their gear and and i'd be interested to see how much fishman's kit may have changed between you know august and 93 and this because they don't have you know, they, they end in August 93, and then these are the next shows. There is no fall tour um, because they're recording, as you had mentioned earlier. And I want to, I wonder, um, anyway, it's now a, a rabbit hole I might go down to try and find that out. But it is definitely this kind of bigger sound that you haven't heard before. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's very satisfying. That snare drum yeah. is very satisfying. It's got that great pop. But immediately, once Bowie, once the song portion of it, such as it is, kind of comes and goes, immediately there's a tease or even a full-on quote of Dream On by Aerosmith, which I understood mm. was kind of a running theme throughout the beginning of the holiday run. Do you remember that when it happened?
absolutely. Um, yes. You know, the dream aunties, you know, hit us obviously right away. And we were just like, ah, you know, freaking out, of course, that, you know, schooled in classic rock, who doesn't get excited over hearing a dream aunties. But in listening back to it, you know, that that first initial drop into the jam, which is like my I love the David Bowie jam. Like I, it's just everything, you know. But that initial first drop, and then there's the second drop, right? So at about 523, they do the drop, and then you hear that dream aunties, and it's perfectly it's timed. Perfect. Just perfection as they exit out of it into the second drop of the jam around 555. It gives me chills every time I hear it. I'm probably going to say that a lot tonight, but uh, <laughs> that is, that's one of my favorite moments of this Bowie. I just love I could replay that over and over. I just love it. And they follow it up with way. And then the curtain, you know, you talk about yep. the circus. Mm-hmm. These are, these are, you know, these are calliope music. These are the <laughs> to the circus, you know, way is now yep. rare, but it was yep. played 14 times in 1993 and then 20 times total since. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I know it's become rare. Yeah. But at that time, yeah, a new song that they liked playing. Right. I mean, relatively new. I've always loved Way. I just think it's a fun, uh, fun song. And um, this one is like a lot of them at the time they're playing it a lot. So it's got a lot of pop and energy to it just really crackles. So it's a good one. And next up was Sample in a Jar, which I know you and I were chatting offline and you said that this song follows you everywhere, right? This is, <laughs> this, this is a song, song that's chasing you. This, this is a song that's chasing me. People love sample. What happened with sample for me is my heyday of seeing fish starting about here through 95. I mean, sample was played uh, every third show easy, you know? Um, so we got it a lot. And, and I think that's the only reason why. And it was always pretty much, Okay, it's sample. It's going to rock out. It's going to do its thing, but it's not going to go off the rails. Um, the yeah, curtain. Well, this, ba- I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to back up to the curtain real quick. At that time, uh, the curtain um, was super special for us, for me especially. Like a song I really looked for, wanted to see, was really getting into it. Loved the composition of it. Had no idea about the width at that time. It would take me all the way until the Jimmy show at Baker's dozen to finally catch the width. I would always miss it by a day. Anyway, the curtain was always one of my favorites. Love it with this one's a really good, clean version classic for the time again, where it's just straight curtain, no width. Um, highly recommend people going to checking that out. After sample, they went into Paul and Silas, which is really right in the thick of their bluegrass Yep. You know, maybe the summer was really when they were pushing it. They had, I think, Jeff Mosier come mm-hmm. on and, and play with them uh, in kind of in the Midwest. They had a lot of a lot of um, the tutoring of, of bluegrass. So it was kind of on its way out. But I love that it stuck around that influence, even though Paul and Silas itself hasn't really. Yeah, I I, I love bluegrass at Fish Show. To me, that's part of the whole thing. Like I, I want a bluegrass song. It's just fun. Love it in the first set. Paul and Silas, always welcome. Interest, interesting side note. I'll never forget. We had, we were getting tapes, you know, of fish shows. And for the longest time, we called Paul and Silas, Hall and Solace. You're not the only person. <laughs> I've heard that exactly okay. before. Yeah. 
No idea why. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's not You're just not us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> and after that is Forbin's Mockingbird. And my first notes when I, cause I was listening to it blind. I wasn't mm-hmm. looking at the set list. And my first thing that I wrote down was they're letting the audience have it with both barrels. They have to know they're spoiling the crowd. Right. And I yes. don't know. I'll never know the answer, but they have to be right. Have to be. And that's how it felt in the room at the time. Colonel Forbin is just like a song that's near and dear. As I had mentioned earlier, like the game hen story for me, I was starting to really connect to. I mean, I was a 20 year old, super idealistic, wanted to commit my life to to um, one of virtue and avoiding avarice and greed and all of that. You know, (laughs) I was fully on board with the book. So getting it was really special. And again, it, it added to the aura and magic of that night for me. Um, he Trey, not only is it played really well, um, because again, it's at a time where they're playing Forbin regularly, you know, it's not like, I mean, it wasn't every other show, certainly. And it's, it was, it, it was played, it, they still kept it just rare enough that it was special every time it was played, but played enough that they were tight with it. And the story he, he tells is a real fun one and, and just worked really well with that surfboard story. Yeah. He says, at the narration, he says, first, he thanks the audience for waiting outside in the cold. So you know, yeah. they, they always know what's going on, whether That's they right. ever make reference to it or not. They always know. He says, thanks for waiting out in the cold. And then to segue into it, he says how we're playing in a hockey rink where under those of you on the floor, you're you're on plywood pieces and underneath you is ice. And yeah. so he says, uh, you, if you try real hard, you can feel the vibrations beneath your feet. You're not really in a steady building. It's moving. And so Mike off right on cue starts to rumble the lowest register of the base. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and now he does this whole thing. Trey does where it's, you're now floating out in the middle of the ocean. He's floating on his little board over there. And suddenly out in the distance, you see on the horizon, a swell coming in. It's big, and you know it's big, and you see it coming, and it's coming closer and closer, and as it gets bigger, you're starting to get a little scared because it's mighty big. It's way off in the distance now, but as it comes off, it's a huge wave coming towards you, building up in energy as it comes. You're hanging on, getting ready, building up and building up, and you start to paddle a little bit, and you're moving over sideways, trying not to get in the wrong spot. It's coming as it comes up. It's just a mountain, a wall of water looking up at you. You get on your board. Stand up. So now you're riding on this, you're riding on this mountain of water, and as you ride, it seems to get bigger and bigger. You're tucked inside the whole thing. You're riding along. Suddenly you realize it's too big. You're tipping over. You're gonna fight it. Oh! And you're falling, and you're thinking you're gonna hit the water, but there's no more water anymore. There's nothing but blackness underneath you. And you're floating down, and you're floating down, painless. You look off into the distance, and you see a tiny green speck floating through the air. You follow it with your eyes. It comes towards you and starts to get a little bit bigger. It starts to kind of take a shape of like a geometrical plane, bigger and bigger, and you realize you're getting drawn towards it with its tiny gravitational pull until you're up above it, and suddenly it starts to take up your whole plane of vision, 
and you find yourself floating gently down towards it and you realize that you're about to land in game hands. As your feet go down, you, the green, the green and in my head, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of practicing yoga. I've tried it a few times. And I'm like, <laughs> is he starting Shavasana right now? Like, is he trying to get everyone to relax? That's right. That's great. I love it. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, in that whole low bass note, I remember thinking, you know, they had done like, like vibe of life was a thing mm-hmm. they would do at that time. Yeah. And so it's, it's conjuring up that whole like vibe of life thing um that's happening and then he right talks about all how, how the basically all the water underneath you know the pipes and so on with the sheet of ice that they're on top of and so yeah really a, a great story something we were fully on board with and of course you land in game engine you know it, he makes it, a big deal out of it he does about to land in game Henge. that's right <laughs> yes yeah yeah so it's full force and it shouldn't be lost that this show is, I mentioned earlier, in the thick of New England. This is, you know, yeah. um, I think it was Steve Lacey who I had on the show. He's an anchor for Fox 5 News in New York. Yeah. And he picked a show at Great Woods in 99. And he really made a big deal of historical reference that before New York, before Madison Square Garden became the center of the fish universe, that it was New it England, was New England, you know, Boston. Yes. And so to go, to play in Portland, Maine, they're treating the crowd. They really are. It's a hometown crowd. Yeah, it's still I, I still have to adjust my mind mentally to not associate them completely with New England. I mean, they barely play New England anymore, it seems yeah. like. But yeah, I mean, they were right. Their first big gig was really Boston, you know, and, and then grew up from there and so on. But um, yeah, and, and that does. And so for them to play Game Henge in, in Portland, Maine, absolutely special. And it's funny that the next song, Rift, is that's like the break. That's the breather. Yeah. Rift is. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, after you you have Mockingbird and then you've got your, your Rift here. And, and Rift at that time, again, you know, Rift was just a well-oiled machine. It was super tight. Yeah. It was it was on the Rift album, which came out in February of that year. And, you know, they'd been playing it, you know, um, nonstop all year. And so every time they played it, it was just the vocals were always on point, all aspects of it. And, you know, when, when Trey would hit that shocked and persuaded my soul to ignite line, I mean, the place would always just explode with energy. Talk about goosebumps, right? Yeah, yeah, just always fun. And after that is Bathtub Gin. And this is right before Bathtub Gin became the the jam monster that we know it as now, and that it really came into its own in 94, 95, 96, and beyond. So this version is 11 minutes, and it's Mm -hmm. still listed on the fish.net jam charts. It's still impressive in a relatively small package, relative to the song at least. Yeah, I mean, they get, um, you know, pretty well into the jam by five, about five minutes in, um, which is pretty quick. You know, one thing when I was looking back at this, too, you know, researching the show a bit, just refreshing my memory and whatnot. This was the sixth, only the sixth version of Gin in 93. Now, they played 100 and about 108 shows, something like that in 1993. Thinking of that today, what the way we view gin, right? I mean, you expect to get a gin in a three-night stand, you know, right? 
so gin was really special. Um, and the last one was the Marat gin uh, on 81393, but um, only six times played, which is, is kind of mind blowing. This is the first one I had ever seen. And we it wasn't were, a new song. It and wasn't it wasn't. New. Well, that's the thing is, no. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it was was it on Lawn Boy, right? I think it was on that. I think that so. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it had been around since I think 89. Yeah. Um, so uh, but for some reason, it was a song they just kind of set aside. And it was a song I loved and desperately wanted them to hear. So them playing gin on that night was a big deal for me. I mean, I was freaking out like this is you know to me it was a bust out you know at that at that <laughs> yeah. point um, it's funny that it's so. fun that you mentioned that five minute mark i wrote in my notes at about that same time that this is where you decide if you like fish jamming or not you know obviously that's a huge yes. statement that's impossible to quantify but in my head like this is fish at uh-huh. around the five or five and a half minute mark and then it's uh, a minute later at 6 45 you're in a completely different song That's right. Did you say it's 635? You're right. You know, and I, it's funny in my notes, I've got a very similar take here that, you know, they, they really start to fragment, you know, that was, which was really that jamming style, right? Build it up and deconstruct, you know, um, and deconstruct it into its parts. Um, I'm sure there's a musical terminology for that, that is eluding me, but yeah, that we're not smart enough for, we're not smart enough for that. So to me, it was this deconstruction and and as you said, by 635 or so, everything just kind of falls away. 
and they're now in a new land and a new place. Um, and again, this is still kind of new for fish in some ways where they're taking it, it it's it's not quite fully type two jamming, I guess. Um, but it's it's kind of walking the line between this type one and type two jamming. And I I agree with you that that's the moment where you go, I either really like this, that this is something where I'm having to work to, to stay inside uh, the rhythm here. And like, where are we in this? Um, I love that. Like, for example, melt jams of this era from 93 to 95. I mean, I love split open and melt jams and, you know, that kind of, chaotic deconstruction and, and tweezer also in this era tweezer also does a similar type of thing where it's you know and, and you know usually fishman's your guide um and, and and mike you know um if you try to keep up with trey you're going to be lost for a long time <laughs> you know so uh it, anyway just and but that that's the beauty of this music is you can four parts and it seems like there's so many at the same time that you can follow so well that's what that's what it sounded like to me it sounded like at this time when you talk about jamming and walking that line between type one and type two and dipping their toes in the water of abstract music meanwhile trying to stick with you know within a comfort zone within the lanes it sounded like it was a whole band had add and they would Mm -hmm follow any inclination that any one of them had for about eight seconds, four to eight seconds. And if it picked their interest, they would stick with it. And if it didn't, you'd be on to the next thing. And toward the end, there was this like double time jam or all of a sudden it speeds up at about, let's see, I have it around eight minutes or eight minutes and 15 seconds. And then they end it and it goes right back to traditional bathtub gin. It's mind blowing. In 11 minutes, this package has a, an entire universe. like got everything um you know and it's it's exactly that kind of madness that that still keeps me chasing them to this day you know it's just so interesting um that at any moment anything can happen you got to keep paying attention they rewarded they reward their fans for listening closely uh, and that's what this is to me you know it's a great example of it you got to just keep up and they closed the set by taking us back to the circus by yep. doing their acapella freebird, which I saw one time on yep. December 29th, 98. I haven't heard it before and I haven't heard it since. And what a delight this is. I, w- I looked this up to find out, because at the time I was like, is this brand new? Is this the first time they've ever done this? You know, again, uh, this is like my 11th fish show at the time. And we also didn't have fish net at our fingertips you know we printed right. out a, a dot matrix helping friendly book thing 
that had set lists and whatnot. So you didn't really have data on fish. And I had not heard it. I didn't have any tapes that had Freebird on it. So for me, I was like, this is, what are they doing? This is insane. And like you said, it's it's this comic relief that happens, you know, like at the circus. And uh, after all that, uh, you know, after the Bowie, the Forbins, um, the, the gin, yeah, you know, um, rewarded with some hilarity and marveling at how one could actually vocalize the Freebird Jam to perfection. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like any good comedian, they take comedy very seriously. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not just a goof. It's also, it's funny enough that a band's going to cover Freebird, but with Fish, it's never a simple joke. It's, we're going to cover Freebird, but more than that, it's going to be acapella. And more than that, even the whole solo and rock middle of it is going to be acapella too. Yeah, exactly. Like you pay for one, I mean, you get three back. That's right. So funny. Set two. The second set opens with 2001. And this is the last performance of the song that it debuted in. It debuted in 93. This is the last performance of it of the year. Of course, it's December yeah. 30th. And it debuted at the man. And it's so much faster and quicker than what it would become, like as we know it today. And yeah. it's also about three and a half minutes long because it's it was played as a set opener, like a like a trampoline, like a jumping off point, And that's it. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, 2001 was at the time was, you know, not meant to be kind of jammed out. I think it would take them until maybe 97 when they start really j- opening yeah. up 2001. Uh, the one that sticks out for me is the great went 2001 as you know, the first time I really recall them like opening it up. But yeah, this version is classic for the time period of just straight ahead 2001, lots of pop and energy. What stood out to me the most was the next song, which was Mike's. Yeah. And this is a monster. This is a big time Mike song. They, you know, page owns it right at the beginning. Like he usually does. But Trey kind of butts in with edgy guitar and then they interact and they have really fun improv at five minutes. It's nothing out of the ordinary at the time, but that still means it's incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, this is a I mean, this this show, when I mentioned 123093 to people who may not have been there or whatever, but but really know fish. Well, they're like, oh, the mics, you know, that yeah. this this to me is what this show is about. Um, if people go and and listen to one thing from this show. This is the one thing to listen to. You get really three jams in one in this show. I mean, in, in the, in this mics, I mean, you get, you know, obviously your usual mics jam. Um, and then you get the second mics jam, but there is a third, third jam. Exactly. And it's just, um, I was listening this to this again last night and I think I replayed it. I don't know, five times. I mean, I just kept going back over certain sections that just stood out to me. I mean, you've got your classic, like from about 440 to 530, you've got your typical kind of like super intense classic 93, you know, massive tension, a lot of ferocity and, and precision in the band, just, you know, hard driving classic for, for them at the time period.
second jam, you know, around six minutes. Um, it's my favorite part, by the way. This right? I mean, develops at six minutes is my favorite. This is the magic here. You know, this six minute, he introduces that theme, right? Yeah. This, this like, and, and it's a minor key that they're in here because Mike leads it with his bass in there. There's there's points where I think they're going to drop in a Yerushalayim, uh, Shel Zahav, mm-hmm. you know, where it's got that kind of minor key happening um, off of Mike's bass. And, and Trey really picks up on that and he adds a theme to it on top of it. I mean, it's it's so beautiful. builds through a peak from about 730 to 850 where it yep. it really peaks out and, and they resolve it around like 910 back to that original like Mike minor lead you know Mike again takes over um it's his song it's his song <laughs> you know it's so funny you said that because I wrote down was listening to it last night and I, I wrote a note about it and said this is why they call it Mike's song like it, that's exactly it it's his song This is just such a good version. Um, that third jam that you mentioned, what I wrote down was that last burst of energy was like when you're squeezing that last little bit out of the toothpaste tube and you think it's completely empty and you think you're like, all right, I got to open the new toothpaste. But like, there's still enough left to brush your teeth once more. Like, that's what it was like listening to yeah. this. It's like, oh my God, there's more here. I it, thought this mic song was over. It's yeah, not. Exactly. I mean, you think around nine minutes, you think you're pretty much done or so, yeah. you know, like it's about there around 1014 to 1204, that period, Mike really takes the lead there. But Trey puts these places, these chords just perfectly. I mean, he sits back and lets the band do their thing. And then he comes in and just 
perfectly places chords over this kind of ominous groove that they've built. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you can just kind of see it being in the building at the time. It's, you know, the steam is billowing around the stage, right? That's their whole like stage right. dynamic at that time is heavy steam. And I remember being at that time thinking, wow, this is like, this really dark new place we've entered. And I love it in here though. You know what I mean? It's nothing yeah, scary yeah. about still it. Still get that feeling of fish. It, still get that feeling. And, and the thing I think about with fish and, you know, even just seeing, you know, this year at Dick's, you know, seeing jams that develop that sound as though they've like, surely they've written this down and practiced this. Right. I mean, this sounds composed, this is a good example of that, you know, where you have a jam that sounds as though these guys worked on this ahead of time or something. And, you know, they didn't. It's all right. Created spontaneously yeah. before eyes. Just amazing. Uh, what what a good mic song. Yeah. And then it slowly quiets down to horse into silent, which is played by the way, the horses, at least with an acoustic guitar, which is a yep. perfect breather. My first thought was 1993 was a beautiful time for fish set lists. You know, they go right into punch you in the eye, which is refreshing to hear this song in a non-set opening spot. Mm -hmm. you know, it, could, it could just pop up anywhere. Paige was doing some pretty fun beat boops. This is my technical term. Beat yep. boops uh, during the intro, which I don't, uh, I don't hear that often, but I liked it a lot. There's a pretty awful botch in the, in the middle of yeah. it around three and a half minutes. But I also thought it's a very complicated part at a very unforgiving tempo. So like you could just brush right past that. When people talk about how fish used to always nail it, that's, yeah. that's a fallacy. They did not always used to nail it. And, and the thing about punch at that time, it's still kind of newish. In 91, you know? um, I think it's a beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. In 91, they started, but, they didn't really play it a lot, you know, um, mm -hmm. pre prior to, I mean, they played it, but, but not a ton. And it was as though they were still trying to find their way with it. One of the things that's interesting is in the intro, there's this kind of strong Dave's energy guide vibe to it. Um, and I, it could be some of the beep boop you're talking about in terms of the keyboard stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think that's uh, that at least something I pick up on there too. Uh, I'd seen it at the Tower Theater in May of this same year, but I didn't really even recall seeing it. So I didn't know it well. And the energy of the crowd on the Hey Chance, I mean, to this day, I've got, I, I was like five rows up off the floor about, you know, 10 yard line from the stage on page side. And I still have this lasting image of just this crowd just fully, you know, ferocious energy on those haze during this and just everybody full throated with the band. Uh, I mean, really uh, high energy, but yeah, a little sloppy early on. It happens. <laughs> and move on to McGrupp. And I thought if you include punch you in the eye, how many game hinge songs have they already played? You know, it's, yeah. they're just yeah. shy of a full narration. Um, but McGrupp is a fun side track. If you can even call, I called it that because I don't know. It's just, it just felt different in the whole flow of the set so far, mm -hmm. but very funny and cartoony vocals and drum fills with the, uh, he looks too much like Dave part. Yeah. Uh, but as always a really pleasant piano solo from mm -hmm. Paige. And I just have a feeling that the quality of this recording and the relatively small size of the venue makes it just sound extra fluid. 
maybe it, maybe it's it's to me however many years later as a listener but i j- it just sounds so perfect there this is a really really great representation of this song i mean i just i i love this version um because of what you just said i mean there's a fluidity to it it's played really clean every note seems to matter as the as the feeling you get from the band yeah. you know they're they're invested in this song completely and you know with page that you know that baby grand came into play this year in february 93 he starts with the baby grand he, he puts it to good use on this jam uh you know that kind of um that outro um, and then the build back, right, um, uh, to finish off McGrupp is just so good. Highly recommend people seeking this out. It's, it's an excellent version. time they close it with Weekapaw Groove, I completely forgot that we started with mics. Yeah. I mean, listen to this. It's mics into horse and silent, punch you in the eye, McGrupp, Weekapog. Yeah. What great, what like... who yeah, what kind of random setless generator <laughs> came up with that? It's yeah, you know, you don't see or hear that every day. And man, and all and, and all of it segues, you know, the yeah. mic segues beautifully in the horse, you know, mm-hmm. the silent goes right, they go right to punch with it, you know, um, McGrupp, you know, before on the final notes of McGrupp, you can hear Fishman hit his hi-hat and snare, and boom, we're off, you know, like, he's ready to go. The set list construction right here is, is uh, if you're into that sort of thing, this, this is an exciting one. Love a big mic screw sandwich. Yeah. And Weekapog, everyone is very aggressive right away at around four minutes. I wrote, this is impressive stuff. I'd be losing my mind if I were actually there. And I had a feeling that when older heads, I include myself in that category, uh, say that nothing now is as good as 1.0. Even though I don't agree with that point, I think that this is an example of what I think a lot of people picture in their heads when they say that.
Yeah, um, there's something about the energy and the playfulness of Trey's playing. We could at this, t- you know, this is just one big everybody busting out their best dance moves, right? I mean, that's what's going on at this moment in that building. Everybody getting down. Trey, you know, it's just a complete celebration. Uh, you got Trey is super playful throughout and on his playing while the band just has this whole band groove. It's just, oh, I mean, they're so connected and it's truly just one sound. I, I, I mean, I, you're right. I think it's a, a, just a brilliant type one weak paw groove. If you don't like this a lot, you, you just don't probably this is not the band for you. Maybe go find <laughs> something else to do. This is the essence of fish right here, you know. And and that's not including the next song because it's six minutes of Weekapog. It turns into this vocal jam that eventually yes. kind of peters out into Purple Rain. Yes, which I love. All the drama of that big second set that Mike's crew we were just talking about now completely deflates into their their best joke song, either that or uh, sexual healing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I've forgotten about the vocal jam. And I forgot that the vocal jam at the end of Week Apoc was kind of the thing they did a little bit at the time. You know, um, not all the time, but it was it was something that happened. It was not um, uncommon, yeah. It was not uncommon for the time period. I mean, they don't do it anymore, but and then it it it, it you know melts perfectly kind of into purple rain. Yeah, I guess came on board around July of 93, I think is the first time they played it. I'd seen it once before in Waterloo, uh, New Jersey, uh, mm-hmm. Waterloo Village. And, and this one was fun, though. Uh, having a really good view of Fishman was great. You know, you can really get him, see him doing his antics, the whole thing. So um, fun version. And to close the whole show, or not the whole show, but the set, it feels like the the end of the show. To close the epic set, we must go to slave to the traffic light. Must. Must, and it's right? Per- perfect here. You know, I looked up the stats on this. Um, at that show, and you can hear it on the tapes because there, there's a nice uh, soundboard matrix of, of these shows. You can hear the crowd chanting, you know, for a good 10 seconds coming out of Purple Rain into, into Slave chanting slave slave oh. slave okay. i'll have to listen back to it i didn't notice that and, and at that show you know it really stood out for me i mean the first 20 rows are chanting slave now they hadn't played a slave on the east coast since november 15th 1990 which happened in maine actually is that a so, verified statistic Do it's a verified stat i mean i could i'll double check it but I I'll double lo- check it. I do a fact check at the end of every episode. All right, good. I was on Fishnet. I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Um, and they hadn't really played Slave a lot. Like it, it was, it was kind of a bust out here. It was a bust out here, and the crowd chanting this, and then Trey, you know, hits those opening notes. It's funny because, again, 1993. Yeah, a lot of people in the crowd are in the know, but a lot of people are still new to fish. And don't know every first note of every song like yeah. they do now. So it takes people, you can hear the crowd like slowly build as they realize like, oh, this is slave. My God, you know, and and they really erupt as they hit the, the main theme of it. But a special slave for that reason. And that, yeah. that blissful peak at about eight minutes closes out the set before the encore, which is 
the prototypical encore. This could have happened yesterday and it could happen yeah. again tomorrow of yes. Rocky Top and Good Times, Bad Times. Standard. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and Trey just shreds it, you know, an opportunity to melt faces one last time. <laughs> Pete Bartoli, thanks so much for coming on Attendance Bias and sharing your experience and going point for point on this unbelievable and one might argue underrepresented show of not just fish history, but the special 1230 canon. So thank you for coming on and sharing your personal experience and bias with us. Thanks for having me, Brian. It was really a, a lot of fun. It's a show I've wanted to talk about for a long time. So thanks again. And that's it for today's interview with Pete Bartoli about December 30th, 1993 at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. But now it's time for the Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. Pete's first show on May 14th, 1992 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester is a very long show. According to Fish.in, the first and second sets plus the encore equals a total of two hours and 52 minutes of music. Like a lot of great shows from the spring of 1992, a soundboard recording is available on Fish.in. The show features a total of 26 songs and standout versions of Fluffhead, Mike Song, Weekapaw Groove with a weight signal, and the beautiful version of McGrupp. The whole show is also chock full of secret language signals and teases if that's your thing. The quote from The Office about the good old days was set on screen by the character Andy Bernard in the series finale. The actual quote is, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. I double-checked and Pizza Suprema is on 8th Avenue between 30th and 31st Street right across from Madison Square Garden. And if there is anyone out there listening who could help me out with a ticket for 1230 or 1231 this year, I'll meet you there and dinner is on me. When talking about Fish's growth in the early and mid-90s, Pete and I looked to the different New Year's Eve venues during the era. New Year's Eve 1992 was at the Matthews Arena in Boston, with a capacity of 6,000 people. New Year's 1993 was at the Worcester Centrum, with a capacity of 14,800, more than double the previous year. And New Year's 1994 was at the Boston Garden, with a capacity of 19,580. So when we talk about Fish's exploding popularity in the 90s, I think that pretty much says it all. When we discussed Way, Pete called it relatively new. Way debuted on March 7th, 1992 at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So a new song, I don't know about that, but relatively new in a time when not every single live note that Fish played was instantly accessible in your pocket. I would go along with that. Sure, Pete. While Pete and I are both glad that Fish Bluegrass has stuck around, I mentioned that Paul and Silas has not stuck around. Looking it up, the song has been played 91 times in Fish's history, but just five times in 3.0. The last time it was performed was on July 22nd, 2016 at the Forum in Los Angeles. That show has the distinction of being one of the worst fish shows I've ever attended, but that story is for a different episode. 2001 debuted at the Man Music Center in Philadelphia on July 16th, 1993. 
And finally, Pete was absolutely right about his wildly obscure statistic that Fish hadn't played Slave to the Traffic Light on the East Coast between November 15th, 1990 and the show from today, December 30th, 1993. That was a delightfully incredible call on Pete's part. And calling it a bust out, they didn't play Slave for all of 1992. Very well done, Pete. I am impressed. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. Again, I'd like to thank Pete Bartoli for joining me today, Fish.net for providing all the information in the fact check, the blog Tackle and Lines for a thorough breakdown of this show, and again, a link to that blog is in today's show notes, and Fish.in for the great sounding recording of the show. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show. Leave a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app and reach out to me on social media. I'm usually active on Instagram and Twitter. If you reach out and say hello, I'm happy to send you a free sticker. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.